three, two, one. Hey, Austin, how are you? Hey, I'm very good. How are you? Doing okay. It's almost the weekend, right? Oh, yeah. Couldn't be more excited. And, and I think we have good news. I think that our, well, lockdown in Illinois won't be as severe. Yeah, no. I mean, it, it's, it's starting to look better. It is, definitely. Um, I'm not really sure what they're doing. Um, I saw today that the state government's going to be in session on Wednesday. And it looks like for at least this area in the northeast part of the state, they're going to start opening things up. So maybe oh, yeah, it's a, a good things. Exciting. Yes, about time, especially with the weather getting better, too. Oh, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so how's your um, how's your, your book going? Oh, it's good. I'm about halfway through and no complaints. Right now I'm at the part where he pretty much is talking about how you know, the concept for taking down one person is the same concept for taking down 10,000 people. So it's, it's interesting. It's interesting to read about tactics and whatnot. Good philosophy, right? Yeah. How's yours? Um, good. I just got past the part where uh, the Germans and Italians uh, are now out of Sicily and the Allies are invading Italy. So I'm kind of at that point. I think it's like September 43 in that right now. Oh, okay. All right. Not bad. Not bad. No, it's a good book. Um, I don't know. Um, last week's show was pretty good, but no one's heard oh, that I yet. Oh, I couldn't agree more. It Wait. was very interactive. I liked it. Yeah, we had a lot of good feedback on that one, actually. Um, people liked the format for it, from what I was told. Uh, other people kind of did like the, the free way and the back and forth. So uh, I know that we've discussed options on that. I think we're going to be doing more of those kind of specials in the future i hope so uh i had a thought oh june's coming up now i had actually talked to joey about it at the end of the show last week because he was he was hyped up i'll be honest with you when i talked to him afterwards when he listened to it the next day he was like he was that was so funny because i forgot that we were even doing a show and i'm like yeah you kind of lose yourself in it yeah, when it's so laid back and casual, it is like you said. It's like you know, people just having a phone call talking about whatever the topic is. You know, it just it's so relaxed and comfortable for everybody. And he goes, I, I'm sitting there, and he goes, I just thought we were just talking. He goes, I, it, when you started going in a like dialect towards like a show, I realized like it pulled me back in what we were doing, and I said, well, you know, it's kind of the way I wanted this the format to be. And then he started asking about these specials again. And I said, well, I've had a few ideas that I shot out there. And one of them that I threw, he was like, that's the one that I want to be a part of. And I said, are you sure? And he goes, yeah, I want to kind of indulge into this. And he wants to do Waterloo for next month. Ooh, yeah, let's kick that off. That sounds good. But he was like, I th- he goes like, I think you want to go home with all this. And I was like, well, I haven't studied Napoleon. God, I haven't read a book on him in at least three years. Right, <laughs> maybe, maybe longer to be honest with you, but I probably read some. I probably forgotten more than most people even know. <laughs> that's yeah, <laughs> that's what's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and it, no, nobody can see this right now, but there's literally a painting of Napoleon on my wall to my right right now. So <laughs> <laughs> I give a visual of what's going on over here. Right. <laughs> um. So I think we should probably recap 
uh, considering that we're going to go back into our um, challenge that we've been doing here, our segment. Yeah. For the last few weeks. Yeah, let's give a little recap. Last week we had a uh, special because of the E-Day. We wanted to do something different. And uh, weeks prior, we were doing our top five generals. Uh, we're going to get back to that this week with our third installment. So, uh, Austin, why don't you talk about the two that you've already chosen, kind of bring people back up to speed, and then uh, I'll go ahead. Yeah, so my round one was uh, James Mad Dog Mattis, and my number two slot was George Washington. Okay. And then in my first slot, I went with uh, John Pershing, and my second one, I went with George Hatton. So, again, just so all the listeners are out there. So, essentially, we're just building our own, you know, you're the president. You got to pick five of the top generals in history and uh, who are you going to pick, okay? Uh, again, this isn't in order about who's going to be or who should be where or shouldn't be there. It's just, it's just our thing. It's just something fun. Um, a lot of people would probably argue, like, what Austin's pick with George Washington. Well, why would you pick him so low? He has his reasons. And I'm going to have my reasons for where I place people. Again, there's – it almost feels bad considering the fact that we only get to pick five. And, I mean, I've been cutting. And it's like, oh, man, this guy really should be here. But it's like, you want to make this list, and it's probably your list too. I got to cut. You know, if this is a top ten, way different. Or if we put them all on the same scale of who are just the ultimate generals, you know – in that vague, you know, statement, just who are the best generals? Okay, but the placement. Right, exactly. And that's what I'm thinking, like, was we have this conversation about, you know, these, these, these five. This is just purely fun. And we give background so people get a kind of an idea who they were. And then we kind of explain ourselves to, again, why we're picking in there. And we had a criteria that was built, of course, that we're not just blindly going into this. And I think, what were the four again, Austin? It was wisdom, integrity, compassion, and courage. Right. So those are the four criteria that we're taking for our picks and why we're doing this. Um, and again, once we get this all established, when we do our five, we are going to have this post. And we'll probably let the viewers, viewers, listeners go ahead and vote whose top five is stronger just to see where we kind of end up in the end. Um, so we're going to do our unveiling for our third round tonight. Uh, let's see. I went first last time. So I think this time it should go to you. All right. Well, we are in for quite the treat and this is all just based on speculation, but a drum roll, please. (laughs) All right, here we go. Favorite part of the day, serving it up. Stonewall Jackson's way. All right, we got Stonewall Jackson. And that's right. That's who I started with. <laughs> Hold on. Before you do this, I seriously got to ask the question. There's going to be somebody listening to this and is going to throw up a flag. Yellow flag is on the field. Zebras are it's on here. the field, and they want to ask the question. He wasn't a U.S. general. Okay. Well. How do we go about that? I got an easy way to sum this up, but I want to hear it from you. From me? I mean, like I said, I just put it up to speculation. I mean, he served a huge purpose. I think, I mean, 
to me, it almost appears that maybe he's as close to a general as you're going to get without actually being labeled a general. Mm-hmm. And that's just kind of how I went about it. <laughs> okay. I'm going to say to the Sega argument to make it easy. And I really thought about this when I was doing considerations is definitely for this week's is I would say we allow Confederate generals to be under the umbrella of the United States only because you had Americans fighting Americans. The civil war is complex in the sense of like it's their own country, people fighting each other for, you know, different reasons. Um, so yeah, in a sense, the you know Robert E. Lee and Jackson—they're not U.S. generals, but it's U.S. history in a traditional sense. But we did say U.S. Right. history, so unfortunately, people listening to this—you can say whatever you want to about the Confederacy, but it's a part of U.S. history because the Civil War was, well, American history. So Jackson's going to be allowed, and we're going to find out why Austin made him as number three. Yeah, and it might not make sense, but nothing makes sense these days anyway, so let's just mm-hmm. roll with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, let's start off with just a little bit of background. Okay, so Stonewall Jackson lived between 1824 and 1863. He was a war hero and one of the South's most successful generals during the American Civil War, um, 1861 1865. After a difficult childhood, he graduated from the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. New York, in time to fight in the Mexican War from 1846 to, like, 1848. He then left the military to pursue a teaching career. He wanted to be a teacher. After his home state of Virginia seceded from the Union in 1861, Jackson joined the Confederate Army and quickly forged his reputation for fearlessness and uh, tenacity during the Shenandoah uh, Valley Campaign later that same year. Um, He served under General Robert E. Lee, for much of the Civil War, uh, he was a decisive factor in many significant battles until his uh, wounding by friendly fire at the age of 39 during the Battle of Chancellorsville in May of 1863. So taking it back even further, Stonewall Jackson's his early years. Um, Thomas Jonathan, the Jonathan Jackson was born on January 21st, only five days before me, in 1824 in uh, Clarksburg, Virginia, which is now West Virginia. When Jackson was two years old, his six-year-old sister died of typhoid fever. His father, Jonathan Jackson, which was from 1790 to 1826, uh, an attorney perished of the same disease a short time later, uh, leaving his wife, Julia Jackson, uh, with three children and considerable debt, after Julia Jackson remarried in like 1830 to a man who reportedly disliked um, his stepchildren, Thomas Jackson and his siblings were sent to live with various relatives. So the future Civil War hero was raised by an uncle in the town of Jackson's Mill, located in present-day West Virginia. Um, and here's a little tidbit. Uh, in 1954, Stonewall Jackson's home in Lexington, Virginia, the only home he ever owned, was turned into a museum and historic site. Uh, he lived in the home, which is filled with period furniture and some of the personal possessions during the decade he taught at the Virginia Military Institute. So that's something to definitely check out if you're a big history geek like that. I think that would actually be actually pretty interesting to look at. Equal trip. Yeah. Um, so in 1842, Jackson enrolled at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Um, he was older than many of the other students. He initially struggled with the curriculum and 
pretty much endured frequent uh, ridicule for his modest background and relatively poor education. However, Jackson worked hard and eventually met with academic success, graduating in 1846. Uh, Jackson left West Point just as the Mexican War was starting, and he was sent to Mexico as a lieutenant with the 1st U.S. Artillery. He quickly earned a reputation for toughness and bravery, and by the war's end in 1848, he held the rank of brevet major. Uh, Jackson continued his military service until he accepted a professorship at the Virginia Military Institute in 1851. So I guess from there we can go to his like civilian life, like you know day to day. So he spent 10 years as a professor, a pro- professor, professor of military of artillery tactics and natural philosophy um, at the Virginia Military Institute in Lexington. Uh, he was better at teaching artillery than natural philosophy, and he was disliked by some of the cadets for his, um, like, lack of sympathy and just, you know, his typical behavior. Um, students mocked him for his, his, his habit of keeping one arm elevated to hide a uh, perceived discrepancy in the length of his limbs. <laughs> uh, in yeah. 1853, he married uh, Eleanor Junkin, uh, the daughter of a Presbyterian minister, who was the president of Washington College. Uh, she died in childbirth 14 months later in 1857. Jackson married uh, Mary Anna Morrison, the daughter of a, of a former president of Davidson College. Uh, the following year, the couple had a daughter. However, the child lived only for a month. Jackson's one surviving daughter, Julia Lara, was born less than a year before her father's death. Uh, Jackson's final years in the Lexington community earned him a reputation as an honest and dutiful man of devout faith. Uh, he did not drink, gamble, or smoke. When Virginia seceded from the Union in 1861, Jackson accepted a commission as a colonel in the Confederate Army and went off to war, never to return to Lexington alive. Um, so I guess something that a lot of people want to know is how he earns his name. So during the first wave of secession from December 1860 through February 1861, uh, during which time seven uh, southern states declared their independence from the U.S., Jackson hoped that his home state of Virginia would remain in the Union. Uh, However, when Virginia seceded in April of 1861, he supported the Confederacy, showing his loyalty to his state over the federal government. Uh, Jackson served uh, only briefly as a colonel before receiving a promotion to Brigadier General under General Joseph E. Johnson. Uh, Jackson earned his nickname at the First Battle of Bull Run um, in July 1861, when he rushed his troops forward to close a gap in the line against a determined Union attack. Upon observing Jackson, one of his fellow generals reportedly said, Look, men, there's Jackson standing like a stone wall. A comment that spawned Jackson's nickname. Jackson was commissioned a major general in October of 1861. Now, from here, I want to talk about the Shenandoah Valley campaign. So, in the spring of 1862, Jackson spearheaded the Shenandoah Valley campaign, uh, firmly establishing himself as a strong and independent commander. The Confederate Army's high command had charged him with the task of defending Western Virginia from an invasion by Union troops. With an army of like 15,000 to 18,000 troops, Jackson repeatedly uh, outmaneuvered a superior Union force of more than 60,000 men. So he was very deceptive and stuff like that when it comes to numbers. Uh, Jackson's army moved so quickly during the campaign that they dubbed themselves foot cavalry. Uh, President Abraham Lincoln had split the Union army into three parts, and Jackson used his mobility to attack and confuse the divided forces over the course of the campaign. He won several key victories over armies of larger size. By the campaign's end in June, he had earned the admiration of Union generals and 
had become the South's first great war hero. Jackson had prevented the Northerners from taking the Confederate capital of Richmond, Virginia, and had done so in, in the face of unfavorable odds. Now, from here, I guess let's talk about the partner, his partnership with General Lee. So Jackson joined Lee's army in June of 1862, and Lee was determined to keep him in the thick of the fighting in Virginia. Chosen for his tactical prowess and bravery, Jackson did not disappoint. From August of 1862 until May of 1863, he and his troops played key roles at the Second Battle of Bull Run, the Battle of Antietam, and the, the Battle of Fredericksburg, and the Battle of Chancellorsville. Uh, by October of 1862, Jackson was a lieutenant general and led a significant portion of Lee's army. His widely publicized exploits had elevated him to legendary status amongst uh, Southern soldiers and citizens alike. Jackson's bravery and success inspired devotion from his soldiers, uh, but to his officers, he was known as overly secretive and difficult to please. Uh, he frequently punished his officers for relatively minor violations of military discipline and rarely discussed his plans with them. Rather, they were expected to obey his orders without question. Um, and I guess here, just kind of to wrap things up, we will talk about Chancellorsville and Jackson's death. Uh, so Lee and Jackson's most famous victory took place near a, uh, the crossroads at the Battle of Chancellorsville in Virginia in May of 1863. Facing a numerically uh, superior Union force of 130,000 men to 6,000 of their own, Lee and Jackson uh, devised and executed a plan to rout the army of Union General Joseph Hooker. Uh, historians call this battle one of Lee's finest moments as a Confederate general, and his success uh, owed much to Jackson's participation. On May 2nd, um, Jackson stealthily um, and quickly took 28,000 troops on an approximately 15, give or take mile, forced march to Hooker's exposed flank, while Lee engaged in diversionary attacks on his front. Jackson's attack on the Union Union's rear inflicted massive casualties on the superior force, and Hooker was forced to withdraw only days later. But the victory was not without cost. Jackson's brutal attack ended at sunset, and he took some men into the forest to scout ahead. A North Carolina regiment mistook them for enemy cavalry and opened fire, severely wounding Jackson. He was taken from the field, and General J.E.B. Stewart took over his command. Doctors determined that a bullet had shattered the bone just, been, just below his left shoulder, and they quickly amputated Jackson's left arm. He was transferred to a field hospital at a nearby plantation to recover. Lee dispatched a letter writing, Could I have directed events, I would have chosen for the good of the, of the country to be disabled in your stead. Um, Jackson initially appeared to be healing, but he died from pneumonia on May 10th of 1863. At the age of 39, Southerners mourned the death of their war hero while Lee faced fighting the war without a highly valued general and comrade. Uh, and Jackson was buried in Lexington, Virginia, as you could guess. And that's the great legacy of Stonewall Jackson. Very well, very well. I think that's the best one that you've come up with so far. I couldn't agree more. It, it was, and, and like I said, between George Washington and Jackson, it was a little bit tricky, but I'm kind of glad that I put Jackson at number three. Okay. I can see why. Yeah. He was very tactical. Yeah. Just He's like, highly regarded amongst historians and amateurs alike. Oh, yeah. And for, for the state of, you know, the state of everything going on at the time and what it took to actually be outstanding, like a general as himself, you know, it, it took a lot of it took a lot of different aspects and whatnot to make sure that you can actually pull something off like that. 
Yeah, he um, he was everywhere once. And mm-hmm. the union the union leadership at that time was just god awful. <laughs> god <Yeah>. awful. <laughs> Absolutely god awful. To give the South credit, they didn't have the the manpower or the uh, technology to say you know be able to mass produce anything, and they they held their own for I'd say three, two and a half years, give or take, where they were pretty much running. You know, and by the time '64 came around, they were they were ground down. That was that was it. Oh yeah, I agree. Plus, like the historian Shelby Foote said that he he said the union was fighting with one arm tied behind his back. So if you take that into consideration, I guess at any point they could have crushed him. So I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's all up to speculation, really. Mm-hmm. Very well. Yeah. So let's see what you got. Well, it's interesting that we we go about this because uh, I think we're going to be in the same timeline here. Oh wow! Same timeline. Yes. Um. So much like yourself. Last week, I or two weeks ago, sorry, I had Patton as my fourth, and I really debated this. Was he three? Was he four? And I actually picked these two, so I knew this was just going to be a flip. Um, so this week for me, I decided to go with William Tecumseh Sherman. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're in the same war where they get their fame, both of our picks this week. So we're in the same timeline here. Um, a little bit on Sherman. I mean, I, I believe most people all know the big thing about Sherman. I'll spare the details on that to get to the end. Um, so I went with William Tecumseh Sherman, and yes, his middle name Tecumseh is named after the Shawnee War Chief, who was giving us hectic in the War of eighteen twelve. His father, I guess, kind of idolized him, kind of liked him, something along those lines. So that's why he gave him Tecumseh. So. He was born February 8th, 1820, in Lancaster, Ohio. His father was Charles Robert Sherman. He was a successful lawyer who was also part of the Ohio Supreme Court. However, he would later die unexpectedly in 1829. This left his widow, Mary Hoyt Sherman, with 11 children and no inheritance. 11 children. Can you imagine having 11 kids now? No. Jeez. <laughs> yeah, he'd be rich to have 11 kids in this era. Yep. Anyways, so after his father's death, the now he's only nine years old, Sherman would be raised by a Lancaster neighbor and family friend, attorney Thomas Ewing Sr. Here's interesting to note. Thomas Ewing had a daughter, Ellen Boyle Ewing. Here's the funny part. Sherman would end up marrying her in 1850 where they would go on to have eight children. So in a sense, Sherman married his foster sister. Oh, wow. That's different. Interesting tidbit. <laughs> yes. Well, I guess one of those love at first sight things. Yes, hi, we're, I'm nine. Now I'm going to marry you. I couldn't imagine being in third grade and figuring that's hey, that girl right there. Marry that's her. the guy who knows what he wants. <laughs> well, that's kind of the uh, intriguing part about Sherman. Every time he, he wants something in life, he very much went, you know, he fought for it, went for it. Um, so anyways, so Sherman would go to West Point at the age of 16. During his time there, he would know he would hold no offices, nor be considered a good soldier, even by his account. Little can be said of his time there. Even his memoirs give little of what occurred. 
He would graduate in 1840 as the second lieutenant, and from there he would be stationed in Georgia, South Carolina, and Florida, and he would take, sorry, he would actually take part in the Seminole War in Florida. It was also during this time that he would get a first-hand account of the old Southern aristocracy. Uh, Sherman's time during the Mexican-American War was, was very limited. He would actually not take part in any military campaign, but was left behind for administrative work in the now California Territory. It was here that Sherman would set up several business ventures, namely in banking before officially leaving the military, all of which ended in disappointment. I think he went bankrupt at some point, too. Um, by the end of the 1850s, Sherman found himself as the superintendent of Louisiana State Military Academy, later, which is now LSU. He would hold this position up to the point of Louisiana leaving the Union in 1861. From there, he would actually stop in St. Louis, where he briefly became president of a trolley company in St. Louis for a few months. Um, then he would actually find his way to Washington, where his brother was actually in the Congress, and he got an appointment to meet with Lincoln, who kind of, his first impression of Lincoln was he didn't care so much about the situation when asked about how Southern people were taking it. He said they were very serious, and Lincoln wasn't, uh, he didn't take what Sherman had to say to heart, he felt. Hmm. Um, Sherman would find himself on the battlefield at Bull Run, or as the South calls it, Manassas. He was a colonel of volunteers. After the disaster, President Abraham Lincoln, who was fond of Sherman, after a visit to troops, promoted him to Brigadier General of Volunteers. From there, he would be sent to Kentucky and work with the hero Fort Sumter, Robert Anderson. What Sherman found in Kentucky was anything he could hope for. He had asked President Lincoln not to put him in position of leading anything. He always wanted to be a deputy, always second in command. But sadly, this was to happen when Anderson asked to be relieved of command due to health issues. Sherman suffered greatly from depression and anxiety. At this time in history, nothing was known of mental health. After assuming command of the Department of Cumberland, Sherman would suffer the greatest setback of his career. While in command, Sherman would overanalyze the situation. He would claim he was short on troops, there were spies everywhere, and, the, and Confederate sympathizers everywhere. He always felt he was outnumbered by the Confederates that were in Kentucky, which wasn't factual at all. Um, he asked his commanding officer, Henry Halleck, to relieve him from command, and he left to his family in St. Louis. Fate would have other plans for Sherman. During this time, Halleck kept in contact with him, make sure he was okay. He was then that he was given a lesser role under Halleck. He was working in the Department of uh, Mississippi as a logistics officer in Paducah, Kentucky, where he would come into a working relationship with no other, other than Ulysses S. Grant. He would actually write to him, and this is what he says, I quote, I feel anxious about you, as I know the great facilities, meaning the Confederates, have concentration by the river and the railroad, but I have faith in you. Command me in any way. Uh, this is after uh, Grant had taken Fort uh, Henry and Donaldson in Tennessee, by the way. Uh, from this point, the two would be joined at the hip regarding the outcome of the Civil War. However, setbacks at the Battle of Shiloh, where Sherman didn't place pickets, was and he was completely surprised by a morning attack, where his forces were pushed back. This was a lesson that Sherman would not duplicate again. 
For Sherman, successes would be later found at Vicksburg, Chattanooga, but not until the Atlanta campaign and the March to the Sea would Sherman become the legend he would become. The idea of the march was based on Sherman's idea of hard war. Take the war to the population who were supplying war materials to the Confederate armies in the field. This would reduce the will of the troops knowing that their families and homes were at risk. Um, Following the Civil War, he would actually become the, uh, when Grant became president, he would actually become the uh, head general of the entire country. Mm -hmm. He would actually pass away uh, February 14th, 1891. A small tidbit about that was uh, his Atlanta campaign. He was going up against Joe Johnston, and I guess they were, they became friends after the war. Uh, Joe Johnston was actually a pallbearer for Sherman's funeral, hmm. and he didn't wear a hat. And when asked about why not wearing a hat, he was quoted as basically saying, if, I, if he were in my shoes, he would do the same. He would actually die of pneumonia about a month after that. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a little interesting tidbit about that. Um, so, so but most, I guess before mm-hmm. you continue, another tidbit, which I'm, I'm surprised you haven't talked about yet, is I believe you've met him before. Isn't that right? <laughs> I believe you have a picture somewhere with the real one. Yeah, I was going to bring it up, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so what Austin is mentioning is uh, no one's listened to this uh, show before. Uh, Austin and I are both Civil War reenactors. So last summer, we had a Sherman lookalike at the event, and I begged him to take a picture with me after the battle. So now you have a picture of him. You, need, you should attach the picture <laughs> when you upload this on the Facebook page. <laughs> I was going to do that. You have to. <laughs> I, you know, it was just like him. I mean, I had to, I didn't even, and I even called him Uncle Billy. <laughs> you did. You did. I remember that. <laughs> Um, I didn't really want to get too much into Sherman's post-Civil War um, career. I mean, you know, there was a lot to do with the Indians, obviously, which we can always say for a different episode. I mean, I just primarily wanted to deal with his inaction as as a general, um, what he was kind of doing, of course. Uh, He wasn't big on politics, you know, just to kind of point that out. So that's why I said, you know, his – after the war, he was still in the military. He stayed out of Washington. I mean, he actually, when he became a head, was it um, general of the armies? He actually moved his office from Washington because he got sick of the politicians, and he moved it to, to the, uh, St. Louis. Jeez, he should see politics these days. <laughs> <laughs> actually, um, going to my last, my four details about him. Um, integrity. Uh, Sherman was a straight to the point general. He was not fond of politicians the media nor volunteer soldiers of course that last one would change over time the other two never really did uh he didn't like the media because they were constantly slandering him i mean his kentucky episode was you know by by today's standards would be i don't know morally wrong i mean they basically called him crazy but the man was suffering from depression and anxiety and you know you look back at records he, he suffered from depression. So, I mean, by today's standards, we all recognize depression, you know, for the most part. It's when you hear the term depression, okay, we understand. Back then, man, they just thought you were crazy or possessed or something. 
Um, yeah, in the media, he didn't like the media. Um, he thought that they were uh, instigators, spies. Uh, his famous quote about the media was that you can kill all the newspaper writers, but you still be receiving news from hell at breakfast. So, fake news. <laughs> yes. So fake news is always been a thing. Wow. <laughs> Well, maybe one of these days we could do a show on the Spanish-American War and talk about yellow journalism and how that started. Oh, yes. So, that would be good. <laughs> you know, just kind of tidbit there. We could always talk about the origins of fake news. Yes. Not something new, people. Trump may have coined the phrase, but it's been around a long time. At CNN. Yes. Yes, let's do that. <laughs> well, we'll put that on the list of things to do. Uh, let's see. Wisdom. Sherman knew they had to take the fight to the enemy. This is this is controversial, so let me do a breakdown on this, and, and maybe you can weigh in with the, the march to the sea. Sure. Um, it was his desire to take the fight to the enemy. He wanted to move through Georgia, causing as much damage as he could. Now, he is really good with logistics and this analyzation about what is needed to move an army. I mean, he was very intelligent to that. Um, he pulled old census records from 1860 for the state of Georgia and found the most supplied counties. And those are the ones he actually picked to march through to get to Savannah because he knew it would have the most food. So he just thought of that ahead of time. Hmm. Um, the other thing is his compassion. Sherman loved his troops. He, he rarely ever ordered frontal assaults. His campaign to, to Atlanta was constant flanking maneuvers, and Johnson would keep falling back. He didn't, I think one time he had one frontal assault, and it ended in disaster on that campaign. So he was always flanking to get around. You never want to put him in harm's way. And I think it's telling of his own men when they actually, his, the Uncle Billy thing that I brought up before. Yeah. They would actually call him that to his face. Hmm. And he wasn't bothered by it. So um, so I, I would say that his most famous aspect is the march to the sea. And that would have tied in with the Battle of Atlanta? It was after Atlanta. So after they take Atlanta, they march through Georgia to get to Savannah. Gotcha. Okay. And that is the – there's a book on that I own, uh, Southern Storm. It's like yeah, – I cannot remember the name of the author off the top of my head. Trudeau's last name. He's got a bunch of Civil War books. The way he writes, it's like uh, there was two wings that were marching, and he talks left wing, right wing, 7.30 a.m. Then it's like the next one is right wing 745. And it's just this whole like, not minute to minute, but like chronological. But it's just detailed. I mean, it's amazing. And then you can actually go through the map and it tells you all the towns. And it's like, so if anybody, you know, wants to know some uh, good information on the March to the Sea, Sherman's March to the Sea, that's that's definitely a good book to check out. Like I said, it's very detailed. Yeah. But kind of gives you a uh, perspective of what was going on. Yeah, shout out to that uh, for sure. Definitely. Uh, Courage. Sherman was always in a thick of fighting right at the front. He was. He was always at the front lines. Even during the Siege of Atlanta, he was out on the ramparts there. Um, so that's why I went with Sherman, my third pick. I could have flip-flopped him or Patton, but I think 
the reason I chose not to was Pan was a hothead. Everybody knows that. He's very opinionated. But I think Sherman knew what it took. There was this balance. Yeah, he didn't like politicians, but he kind of knew that it was a sense of having to work with them. But he also knew his limitations. He didn't want to be the man until he learned to be the man. Hmm. Pat always wanted to be the man. Put in his two cents to everything. <laughs> yeah, he did. He absolutely did. That book I'm reading now, he did. You know, so I could have went either way. I don't really think. I think if it was like a percentage, I mean, you're talking maybe half a percent difference that made me think this way. But that's that's Sherman in a nutshell. You know, maybe we could go into detail more about these characters of history when we uh, maybe go into some other specials or something in the future. Yeah. No, I would definitely be down to do that. Um, I know since you did Jackson, do you think if Jackson was at Gettysburg, it would have had an effect for Lee and the outcome may be different? Uh, I said, uh, being that you did Jackson, do you think if Jackson had been at Gettysburg, he was you know, killed, obviously. You think the outcome of Gettysburg could have been killed? different? Yeah. I yeah. mean, he was he was a force to be reckoned with. I think that it definitely would have impacted it. It, it would have definitely put up a, 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 another, like another obstacle that the Union would have just had to overcome at some point. You know, it, and it was just a matter of time mm-hmm. if they could do it. True. No, I mean, there's people that argue that they said, well, if Jackson had lived, he would have trying to talk Lee out of doing the campaign, but I think sake arguments say, well, let's say it happened and the campaign goes on, how's the outcome? A lot of people think the same way that you just said. It yeah. would have been different. Because like you said, you know, like, like Sherman, you know, putting the two side by side, like Sherman was definitely like always on the flanks. So was Jackson. He was always about the, dece- uh-huh. the deception and manipulating the battlefield to his own advantage. So I feel like it would have been a pretty crazy clash if he would have lived longer. Yeah, I agree. I, I definitely agree. Uh, you just wonder how these little things would have sorted out in the long run, especially the way the war was going. I mean, it was not popular by that point. I think most people here were just yeah. tired of it. Yeah, no. I mean, the Union had been really been losing. I mean, if it wasn't for what Grant was doing in the West, it it pretty much was, you know, can, the Confederates were all over. I mean, winning. Now, it, it's not like they took the war to the north. I mean, they did two invasions of the north, the entire war, you know, Gettysburg and then the Maryland campaign. But, you know, primarily they were fighting a defensive war the whole time. So. Yeah. No, I mean, and, you know, it, it's it just. Weird. It's those little like butterfly effects where, you know, any little thing could have changed the outcome of the whole war. That's true. That is true. Um, but most people don't realize Robert, Robert E. Lee wasn't even the first um, Confederate general, like the top guy. He wasn't like the well, commander in chief was uh, Jefferson Davis, but you know, where he was, Lee was really in charge of that army. But in the beginning, it wasn't. Actually, it was Joe Johnston. And when he got wounded, then Lee took over. So, again, so you're saying the butterfly effect, it's like being in the right place at the right time. I mean, look at Grant. If Grant doesn't have those successes out west, 
he's never going to come east like he does later and change how everything was working in the Eastern theater. And kind of a tidbit for me, um, especially with Sherman and Grant, especially if nobody's ever read anything on these, on these two, um, you definitely should. The only reason I say this is because if, if, if you look at yourself today and you're just down about your current situation, you know, your life isn't going the way you want to, um, you know, everyone knows life's hard. And I think everybody wakes up saying, God, this is not where I expected myself to be at such and such age. And we all feel that way. These are two individuals that you want to look past, you know, look into the past and realize that they had it bad before their popularity. I mean, Grant was essentially broke living in St. Louis before he took a job in Galena, Illinois, to work under his brothers, who were younger than him, in the family business. Okay? I mean, he's broke. Sherman, like I said, I mean, he, he, he was out of the Army. He had failed in all his you know, business ventures with banking and other you know, businesses he set up in California and New York. Failed um, and came back. And if it wasn't for the war, which is kind of interesting, you know, Grant becomes a president Yep. out of all this. And Sherman ends up, you know, the highest military position you could get in the country at the time. You know, and he takes that for, you know, probably the next, what, 15 years or so he's in that position before Sheridan takes over. So if you think your life isn't going anywhere today, you got to look back and realize that a lot of the famous people in life have had the same problem too. And I, I pulled inspiration from those two when I look back, especially Grant. When you realize he was broke, I mean broke, and he became a president in eight years. So just think of it. When you look, he looks back eight years ago, he was broke and now he's president. We could all rise to the table. It's the land of opportunity. That's it. Unless the socialists get in there and then they'll tell us they're all the same, which is horse crap. Yeah. Then the boogaloo kicks off and we're all good to get no <laughs> Yeah. Yep, that's right. Don't forget to wear your Hawaiian t shirt. our body armor. <laughs> <laughs> it's your yeah. local <laughs> army surplus. The guy with a smile on his face. Um, yeah, I think this. Uh, pattern that we're doing here i think we're going to be getting into the yeah, nitty-gritty yeah, we only got two picks left slowly coming together well it's going to be good um so let's look at the calendar we are sitting on the fort 15th of may okay so we had two episodes left yep. for this series and that's may um I was thinking of posting something on our official Facebook page about uh, content people would like to hear, just kind of input going forward, because I, I know this series was the first thing we wanted to do because of what we had talked about in the past. I just want to know what kind of content the, the listeners would like to hear. You know, there is a segment somebody wants to listen to that we could look into. So um, definitely if somebody's out there and they're listening uh, to this and, Drop by your Facebook page, drop us an email. 
let us know something that you'd like us to talk about. We'll definitely put it on the agenda because we have oh, a whole yeah. lot of content. I mean, something that up. I would like to talk about is VJ Day. You know, with all the Japanese history that I'm looking at lately, it's something that I feel like we both could kind of put our input on. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Well, when we hit August, we can do that. Yep. Um, so I know we're going to do uh, Waterloo coming up next month. That's going to be interesting. So we have Joey back on the show for that. Uh, I have had two conversations with two individuals who want to come on the show. Uh, so I know there's going to be a segment of Norse Ooh. mythology, Vikings coming up. And uh, I got another one who, depending on what uh, we're going to talk about, we'll probably do some Civil War coming up too. So uh, stay tuned for some good good content coming up. Um, but we are not shutting down for the summer. So then anybody's used to season stopping. The train don't stop. Are That's not. Nope. Train don't stop. Um, now, there might be uh, a few different changes coming up on the, on the show. Um, we're trying to work on a progress where this might be an umbrella. Where, like, Austin and I are doing the show. We've had Joey on. We're going to have guests on. But we might have an umbrella where we have segments where like Austin's very much into Japanese history. He might have his own show under the umbrella of not your normal history, where he's talking about samurai and uh, Japanese history. So stay tuned for different content coming up, but definitely be getting more involved as we head into um, summer and the ideas that we've got uh, plotting out, but stick with us for the next two episodes so we can get this, uh, Top five unveiled, and we'll let the public vote and see who's yeah. got the stronger team. And, and just so the viewers know, you know, we, we would love to hear input no matter what. You know, we're we're not saying exclusively you have to wait till the end to put in your input. You know, you can you can kind of review and criticize our mm-hmm. episodes every time they come out. You know, just give us you know what what you think, your thoughts. Yes, because the only way that we're going to improve is we need to hear some criticism or, you know, give us a shout and say we're doing good. Uh, we'd like to hear back from people, those who are listening on a weekly basis, so we know that you're out there. Uh, we are definitely trying to build this show up to something more in the future. So definitely, you know, hit the play button. Uh, I, what do they, what are, it's not a thumbs up. Clap. What do they have for us on this channel? Yeah. The clap, that's it, the clap. I was going to say a star, but I was like, what is this, Mario Brothers? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, any, so, you know, definitely let us know. Content, historical stuff we like to talk about. Uh, one thing, I know there's listeners who are listening to this that are avid sports fans. Yep. There is a series coming up. It is in the works right now. Well, we're waiting for Major League Baseball to tell us when they're coming back. So we're going to kind of coincide with opening day officially. So stay tuned for that. That one's going to be exciting. Um, based on that criteria, we may have four of us in the de- baseball debate coming up, too. So uh, we're just waiting for opening day so we can have some baseball fun, too. So definitely, like I said, it's a show about history. But it's just not normal history. Austin, what do you got before we uh, close out this uh um, I gotta say, you guys are pretty lucky. You know, you guys just landed in the ocean and 
yeah, every time you guys listen to our show or, you know, tune in or whatever, you guys are just going deeper, deeper into, you know, theoretically the Marianas Trench and you're now fully submerged in the historical abyss, which is not your normal history. So thank you for listening. And yeah, we're just going to keep knocking these out for your guys' sake and ours. So enjoy it. Likewise. And I think that looking at the time, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's Coors time. And with that, have a good day. Have a good day. <laughs>